You're listening to the Holy Shift Podcast. I'm Scott Neal, your host. This podcast is designed to help change how we see everything. I cannot describe how excited I am to bring you today's guest, Dr. Chris Green. Chris is a distant spiritual mentor of mine, and it was an honor to sit down with him and simply listen. He is brilliant, challenging, and encouraging. God has used Chris to renew specific areas of my life in ministry, and he has pushed me to new levels. Dr. Chris Green is professor of public theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. Dr. Green has also taught at other schools, including Pentecostal Theological Seminary in Cleveland, Tennessee, Oral Roberts University, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Southwestern Christian University in Bethany, Oklahoma. He also serves as teaching pastor at Sanctuary Church, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Chris, his wife Julie, and their three children currently live. The discussion is about an hour long. I could have continued talking with Chris for another hour, but I wanted to honor his time and let my brain rest. Enough of me rambling. Let's get into the discussion. You are in Lakeland, Florida. Is that correct? I actually live in Tulsa. I work for Southeastern, which is in Lakeland, but I actually live in Tulsa. So I, yeah, it's an easy confusion because we lived in Lakeland for a while. Mm-hmm. Last summer we moved back to Tulsa for family purposes. But yeah, I still I work for Southeastern. Okay. And you are a teaching pastor at Sanctuary Church, correct? That is also Yeah, true. and yes. how often are you there teaching? Well, I've been there altogether almost ten years and for a long time I spoke at least once a month, usually traveling in. This is while I lived in Florida or Tennessee before that. Now that I live here, um, it's pretty random. I mean, I, I, I might speak as much as twice a month mm-hmm. and I might speak, not speak again for six, you know, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of shift uh, for the church yeah. over the last couple of years. And so we're constantly kind of readjusting speaking schedules and so on. But yeah, that's where we attend. And when I'm in town, when I'm not somewhere speaking, right. you know, traveling and speaking, then I'm there and I speak you're probably still on average about once a month. Great. And how often do you travel to go to other churches and speak? I used to do it all the time. Okay. I mean, the, the pandemic yeah. obviously really slowed that down to, to a halt for a long time. Um, I've this summer started traveling again and I've made, you know, I would say probably right now at least one weekend a month I'm somewhere. I'm speaking. So that, something like that. that's wonderful. Well, Hey, before we get into uh, some of the quotes from your book, I, I want to mention how I actually came across you about six yeah. years ago. I was listening to a podcast, uh, Luke Norsworthy's podcast, yeah, and you were, course. you were a guest on, on his uh, podcast. And he mentioned something I found quite interesting. He said, you were the most intelligent Pentecostal he had come across. <laughs> <laughs> so that piqued my interest because I grew up in the, right. in the Pentecostal tradition. And actually our church is associated with the uh, Church of God Cleveland. I know you were a professor at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary there. And uh, right. so when he mentioned that, I said, okay, I got to check this guy out. So I listened to his podcast twice, and uh, then I went in and began to track down some of your material. So that, that's how I got a, acquainted nice. with you. So you you have no idea, uh, you know, where the podcast will land and who it might inspire. So that's my hope out of, uh, out of this podcast as well. Well, I mentioned yeah. about the, the book, uh, surprised by God. And, and I know I've already given you some accolades there, but I tell you, it has, it has been such a rich journey for our group. Uh, we have probably six or eight that meet every Monday evening 
and we just slowly work our way through. And I was so excited to introduce them to you and to get this book into their hands. And we've got someone who's moved to um, Michigan uh, over the last few weeks and still log in every week. And they're, they're, they're tracking with us and, and learning. So it's just been great. So if I can, I'd like to, to jump into this book and read some quotes and then get your, your thoughts on them. Okay. And then we can course, have yeah. a little discussion after that about some other things going on. Uh, this comes from chapter one uh, from your book. It's actually on page seven and eight, and I'm only going to go through like maybe two or three chapters at the most, and just a few quotes and um, yeah. get people kind of get a feel of, of what you actually are able to, to accomplish in this short book. It's actually a small book for those of you who may be considering purchasing it. It's a brief book, but wow, it is just so filled with truth. Uh, this comes from uh, chapter one called What to Do When the World is on Fire, page seven and eight. Chris writes, we've been trained to expect and so to demand truths that make instant, easy sense for us, truths that in some way immediately improve the quality of our lives. But as St. Augustine wrote, told us long ago, humans aren't just for using things. We aren't meant to enjoy God we are meant to enjoy God and neighbor and to find ourselves through losing ourselves in God's enjoyment of our neighbor. Contemplation of the divine nature and character then is a form of rebellion against the tyranny of the practical. I love that line. And precisely in that way, it is a refusal to live fearfully. Contemplation moves us beyond thinking of God as useful as if he were a resource we draw on to make our lives what we have been told they should be. That is a beautiful section, uh, Chris. And I'd like for you to expound a little bit on that. I know there's a lot there, but um, yeah. what um, I love the, the whole idea of the, the tyranny of the practical and trying to see God as a resource for us. Talk to me a little bit about that, if you will, please. Yeah, I mean, so much, right, at that is at play and all and all of that and one one aspect of it is there there is in a lot of our churches you know and you and i are just getting to know each other so i don't yeah. know the circles that you move in right at least not yet but in over the years I, i've come to see that this this runs across denominational differences this runs across even major denominational differences it runs across ethnic differences and economic differences that part of like being Christian in America is to feel the pressure to make truth not only simple, but something that promises to immediately improve the quality of people's lives. Yeah. Right? People just, preachers, pastors, feel the pressure to say things that people immediately, intuitively know are true and that work quote unquote, right. That somehow translate to benefit yeah. for everyone. And I, I, I don't think that that's a pressure we can live with for very long. Like it, it will break us down because it's not really what we're called to as human beings. And that's what, where I'm drawing on St. Augustine, right. That we're, we're meant to enjoy, not just to use. And ultimately we're meant to enjoy God and neighbor, you know, that the old line in the catechism of, the, the end of human beings is to enjoy God forever, right? Like there's a way that, and that's straight out of Augustine, right? That this, this notion that we are meant for more than 
producing things more than work in that sense. And sometimes the truth does not seem to work. It doesn't work in the ways that we want it to. And the truth is not simple often in the ways that we want it to be. Even when the truth is simple, it, it isn't the kind of simplicity I think we're often conditioned to look for, right? So this is an example of that. When we say that, you know, Jesus sums up the whole law in love God and love your neighbor as yourself, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's simple in a certain way, <laughs> but you would have to be really rash to think that that's simplistic, right? right? I mean, it, it, it's incredibly demanding and it's, you can see some of how demanding it is the moment you start to ask, well, what does that mean in relation to the coworker that I know is being abused at home or the boss that I know is involved in corrupt practices or my neighbor that I, I know is a registered sex offender? What does loving those people look like? I mean, at that point, it's no longer simple, right? Yeah. And so I, I think I sometimes say to my students that – Broadly speaking, American evangelicalism, and again, I think this runs across denominational differences. So in some ways, this doesn't it doesn't matter if you're Baptist or Catholic or Lutheran or Pentecostal, you feel the pressure for truth to be simple. And what we mean by simple is it doesn't require any work of discernment on the part of the hearer. You say something, it's immediately recognized as true. Yeah. We we and we think the more important the truth is the simpler it is. Right? So the, it, if something is really important, and there's a whole history here to how this came about, of course, but if, if something's really important, then anybody should be able to grasp mm -hmm. it. And you should be able to say it in a way that anybody can grasp without any work on their part. Right? So truth is simple. Truth works. Right? It produces outcomes. And usually what we mean by that is people are drawn to it. It changes their lives. They give money to it. And they, they keep showing up yeah. to whatever ministry you're offering because it's worked for right. them. Right? So then we also tie that to the notion that it that entire process of hearing the truth and being changed by it should be painless. Hmm. And when you're committed to that kind of simplicity, that kind of effectiveness, and to doing all of it painlessly – it, it's almost impossible to be honest about what your experience actually is, right? Because the truth is rarely simple. And even when the truth is simple, I'm rarely honest enough yeah. to receive it in simplicity. It often doesn't work in the way that I want it to. I mean, scripture is filled with the, the lament of why, why did the wicked prosper, right? right. So all of, those, all of those ways, scripture's warning us that truth does not work in, in any kind of obvious predictable way and it is anything but painless yeah. right? that the process of being shaped into the image of god is anything but painless so i think in some ways we what i'm trying to speak to in that passage you read is there has to be a kind of deep deep fundamental shift in what we think the christian life is what we think life is yeah. and and what god wants for us from it that's beautiful. You know, I have to confess as a pastor, I went through a, a number of years where I fell into that that rut, if you will, that trap of trying to be as practical as I could, you know, and make make following Jesus something that, you know, anyone could grasp and and could go ahead and get started immediately. And I, you know, began to 
it almost seemed as if it's embarrassing to admit, but it's just true. Going to conferences and you know listening to a lot of the church church growth help gurus out there, um, and I'm not blaming them. You know, I it was my sure, choice, no. but you know, I began to find myself trying my best to give three steps, you know, to this and four ways to do this and reduce marriage, you know, to something that, yeah. that, you know, if you listen to this series, you'll have probably a wonderful marriage. And if you follow yeah. us on this three week journey, your spiritual life will really take off and all you have to do, you know, are these three or four things. And what I'm finding is a lot of our, our folks, uh, coming up empty. They, and, and it's a, it's a real disappointment when, when your people come up and say something of, of the nature of, I, I did all of that and it, it's not working. Now, what do I do? And that's, right. and, yeah. and that's hard. We've seen that in our group on Monday evenings. We've got some folks in our group going through some, you know, really difficult things. And they've looked at me and said, you know, uh, we did it and it, it didn't work. So that's one of the reasons they joined this group to really get deep into some theological truths mm-hmm. and process these things. And we've tried to just, you know, take all the, barriers down. And so you can ask any question you want. And some of the questions are, you know, quite graphic and are, are threatening to, to a lot of other Christians. It's, it's scary, you know, where's God and why isn't he answering after I prayed and fasted and, you know, after I did all these different things. So I think that's one of the reasons I put that paragraph in our discussion today. It just spoke to us so much and we twirled around with it and flipped it upside down and over again and tried our best to just come to, to terms with it. And I, I'm, I'm guilty as a pastor. I'm guilty of the tyranny of the practical. And mm-hmm. um, over the last couple of years, I, th- I think God has, you know, been taking me on a little different journey. And you certainly have been a, a part of that journey. Yeah. So thank you for that. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. I mean, one way of illustrating that sometimes I'll, I'll put some basic shapes up on the board, you know, whiteboard, a, a kind of inverted triangle, a circle and a square. So, you know, if everyone can just kind of imagine those three shapes I think that in general, and again, we're painting with broad brushes here. There are lots of nuance that that could be colored in. But broadly speaking, our churches have tended to do ministry that is broad, but not very deep. Mm. right? So we're trying to reach as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, to get them to make as quick a decision as possible. But we, we kind of leave the deeper work for other people to do. Right. right. And then and it turns out most people are leaving the deeper work for other people to yeah. do. Right. And so for a long time in our circles, and again, this is across denominational differences, we've if you see that kind of inverted triangle, we've spent most of our time at, at the very top of the triangle, something that's broad but not not very deep. Yeah. It doesn't get to the deeper things of life. And that that means, among other things, that we, we rarely talk about God. We talk a lot about what God does do for us or has promised to do for us or what we want God to do for us. But we don't talk much about God's character yeah. or God's nature. And part of another aspect of that quote that you've held up is is not just that things don't always work, but also we're meant for contemplation. We're meant to, to sit with God, right? To be with God, to be with each other, to listen, to be attentive. And I think that in a lot of our circles, that capacity is dormant if it hasn't atrophied altogether, right? We've, we've kind of lost touch with the capacity to just be there with God, 
and to be there with each other. And it leads, you can see this, say the story of Job, right? Where Job's friends, they hear the story about what's happened to Job. They come to him. They sit with him for a while. But then when Job starts to speak, something rises up in them that demands that they set Job straight, right? They can't just sit with him. They can't just be there. And at the end of the story, this is what God tells them, right? You've not spoken rightly about me and you, you've got to go back to Job and let him pray for you. In other words, you've got to position yourself differently. You don't go to Job and have any more discussion. You've got to change your posture. And I think that is something all of us have to learn and relearn, right? The, how to, how to have a posture with God and with neighbor which we're not trying to fix anything. Yeah. We're not trying to, to say the word that, you know, will set everything straight. We're, we're simply being there yeah. with each other. And I think that's, that's another aspect that's, that's hard for us because we feel, we feel the pressure to be effective, right. To yeah. get things done, to fix yeah. what's wrong. And even sometimes when, you know, we talked for a moment about, what happens when that doesn't work? Like the despair that that can throw people into yep. the confusion, certainly that they experience, but it sometimes seems to work and that's just as dangerous, mm-hmm. right? So for people who, who think they figured it out, inevitably they, they lose compassion. They become impatient with people for whom it doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? Because it worked for me. Why wouldn't it work for you? It must be a problem with you. And, so sometimes the the most destructive aspect in our churches is not the people for whom it doesn't work. It's the people for whom it seems to work. They think they have cracked the code on how to have your best life now. And they end up inevitably becoming cruel and hard, demanding in ways that are not true to who God is. And so I I think the only way to kind of come back to the heart of things is to learn again, just to be with God and to be with each other and, and not to let ourselves be pressured into trying to fix. Which seems to be quite a a challenge within our culture because we seem to have so many people who um, are wanting quick fixes to some very deep uh, spiritual questions or problems and mental issues. I, um, one of the things that I seem to notice is there's a lot of, of, um, um, you know, self-help books being sold. Our, our people are coming in going, Hey, have you read this therapist? Have you read this counselor? Have you read this person? And they're giving them very quick fixes again to, to marriage and to, to mental health issues. And they're wanting the church to kind of come alongside and also participate in those, you know, three things here and four things there. And it's a temptation, you know, for pastors to try to stay up with all the culture and and try to do that and getting our people to slow down enough to just contemplate and to be okay with unanswered questions and to wrestle through the mystery and to, to sit alongside Job and, and just be quiet or just ask the hard questions. That's sometimes a challenge. So um, I appreciate so much what you, you said there. Well, let's uh, let's move into chapter two. Um, how not to believe in God, 
And I have a, a lengthy quote here that I, I want to read. I'm actually going to pause throughout the quote and kind of get your thoughts on it. Then we'll move a little further into okay. it. Again, Dr. Yeah. Green writes, many of our traditions have for a long time feared nothing quite so much as dead orthodoxy, lifeless spirituality, and ineffective religion. We've been convinced that what matters most is for our churches and ministries to get as many people as possible to believe as quickly as possible, and for individual believers to take responsibility for their personal relationship with God, rarely, if ever, stopping to consider what such language actually means. I remember the night we got into this discussion, we paused right there, and we probably spent 30 minutes or so just talking through this idea of a personal relationship with God. Because in my tradition, and probably yours, if I'm not sure exactly your uh, religious tradition in the past, but I know Pentecostal being raised in uh, yeah. at least a, a teaching at a seminary, you know, we were constantly talked, told, you know, you need to work on your personal relationship with God. Um, and we, you know, I, I think indirectly, I guess, we absorb the idea that when you walk into church, it's really about you and God. And hopefully God will have a word for you today. And, you know, who cares yes. what anybody else is doing as long as you're worshiping God, you know, and um, everything was very focused in on on your spiritual growth and, you know, you pressing in during worship and you taking notes during the message. And, and and again, it, 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 it felt good for a while. And, you know, we, we felt somewhat, elite, maybe we were real spiritual gurus, hungry for God, you know, chasing after God, all those different things. But I remember that evening when we got to this paragraph and we just stopped. I don't know that we went much further than this idea of a personal relationship with God. I'd just love to hear just a few more thoughts from you on that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about the Pentecostal tradition, which is, you know, where I was reared, did most of my academic training served as a pastor now in Pentecostal churches and teach in Pentecostal schools. So, I mean, that is, that is the tradition I know best. I, at least in terms of experientially, like that's where I've lived. Those are the people I've lived with. I, I think that at its best, Pentecostal spirituality is a kind of, it's a kind of monasticism, a kind of lay monasticism where every believer is encouraged, urged to, pursue the, the deeper things of God. At least that's the framing. Yeah. Now, I think over the last few decades that there's been a pressure from the church growth movement that you mentioned earlier back in the other direction, in which a lot of that has gotten lost, right? So I think mostly here what I'm talking about is a Pentecostalism that exists mostly in people's memories. And there aren't a lot of churches, I think, that still actually practice mm -hmm. this, even in the Pentecostal tradition. But there was this kind of sense that we should give ourselves to prayer. You know, the old Pentecostals would talk about praying through, yep. right? Coming to the altar, laying your all on the altar, staying yep. in the altar until you have, you've touched heaven. Right? There's this, so it was largely conceived as a, as a life of, of prayer and pursuing the, the deeper things of God or, or the higher life. And all of that I think is, is wise and beautiful, but in practice, that that ended up splintering in all kinds of ways because of various pressures that came back on it. And one of them being, as I said, the church growth movement. But part of what came from that, 
unintentionally. I don't think anyone had any, you know, nefarious motives or, or spite or anything wicked, but just in the ways in which we can so easily kind of get off course. I think one of the things that happened over the, over the years is that that became less about really having my life conform to the character of God and became about a technology for getting from God the blessings I wanted. That, and again, the Pentecostals I grew up with, they knew this difference. They would preach all the time about you, you should love the giver, not the gift. Right. I can remember you know, hearing preachers talk about the difference between Moses and Israel is that Moses knew God face to face, but Israel stood at a distance. Right. So there are all kinds of ways in which we knew that. But still, what ended up happening in our preaching, in our singing, in our praying is more and more our relation to God came to be about how do we leverage God in such a way that we get the outcomes we want, yeah. right? So that when people are sick, we get the healing. Right. When people are poor, we get the financial blessing, or et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And that's back to the first quote, right? That now we've made God into a resource yeah. for the life we think we need. And we're simply using prayer or study of scripture or fasting or whatever the Christian practice is. We're simply using that as a tool or a technique to get an outcome that we want. And that's not who God is. I mean, Walter Brueggemann has this wonderful line, which he says, God is not useful. That that's what the first three command, the first three commands in the 10 commandments are about, that God is not useful. And we're not meant simply to use things. Right? So I think part of what I'm trying to draw attention to is that living that way is false. It, it isn't true to who God is, and it isn't true to who we are. And so eventually, it starts to tax you, yeah. right? It starts to wear you down, because that's not true to who God is and to who you are. And therefore, it, it's the falseness of it um, starts to fracture you yeah. and splinter you. And I, I think we have to be called back to loving God and loving neighbor and in ways that are more than, you know, some kind of way of getting the outcomes that we want. Now, all of that is bound up with, I won't go on forever here, but all of that is bound up with the kind of Billy Graham evangelistic model, which made a, a subtle, but I think enormous shift in the way we imagine the Christian life. And here I'm talking about much more broadly than the Pentecostal movement. I mean, I think Christianity in America and and globally, so many Christians started to think about the Christian life as essentially about a decision and about a decision to have a personal relationship with God. And then the personal relationship with God to be mostly about trying to keep up some kind of running conversation with God, right? Some kind of dialogue. So you're reading scripture and you're praying. But I think that's a serious mistake. I mean, a a, a deep mistake. Because one, I, I do believe we're called to conversion. But I don't think conversion is ever as simple as a decision. Like conversion is about my life being turned, right? Being reshaped, being reoriented. And what I'm called to is not a personal relationship with God as an end, but I'm called to be conformed to the image of God. Right. 
So it isn't enough for me to kind of have a personal relationship with God. That, that, that's, there's no security in that. What I'm called to, what all of us are called to, is to be drawn into Christ's likeness, to, to become like God. And that, of course, is borne out in the way we care for those who are nearest to us. Yeah. So I, not to speak ill of Billy Graham or speak ill of anyone, I do think we have to kind of realize that there was a, slowly we, we stumbled off the path in that we thought we were talking about conversion, but suddenly we were just talking about decisions. We thought we were talking about like deepening your life of prayer, but really we were talking about finding techniques to get the outcomes you want. And that's magic, right? That's not, that's not true spirituality. And, and so I think there's just some recalibration that has to take place. Again, not because people have bad motives. I, I, don't think, I don't think there are a lot of bad actors driving that. It's just good, honest people stumbling off the path. And some of that, of course, is about the way evil tempts us. But well, some of it is just how easily we kind of lose our way. Yeah. yeah, that's right. You know, I grew up, a lot of my spiritual formative years was in the late eighties with a lot of the crusades and a lot of the Billy Graham crusades and traveling evangelists. And it became the hero the spiritual hero was the guy that had more numbers at the end of the service. And I still see a lot of that on social media with churches counting how many hands were lifted and everyone, you know, while you had an amazing service, you had 12 people decide, you know, to come to Christ and you had 13 and, you know, you had 50 at Easter and, and we still do a lot of that. A praising of the people who can get the numbers. And it unfortunately just feeds into that, that machine. And, and it, uh, Absolutely. yeah. So it, that's something I'm going to go on a little further into that same quote. If, if I can, these are just kind of some things that we stopped and talked about. You've already spoken to a little bit of this earlier, but I want people to hear just how beautiful it is and how you write this. You say we've acted as if slow, deep catechesis is not terribly important much less essential in the discipleship process. And insofar as we give any attention to doctrine and theological formation at all, we've, we've tended to focus on the distinctive teachings of our movement or denomination. Now, do as much to our successes as our failures, we are threatened not by nominal Christianities, but by false ones. I remember, again, we stopped right there and said, okay, let's talk about false Christianities. What, you know, I you know, I, I, again, I'm embarrassed to admit how often I have written and taught classes and I called them discipleship classes. And they really were just something I ran people through about four to six weeks. You know, I gave them the overview of Christianity, gave them six or eight different, you know, under how to understand, you know, salvation, memorize these scriptures, you know, this is, this is what it means. This, this is why you can trust the Bible. You know, here are four or five different things to know that it's, you know, it's history is solid. And, you know, and then I get to the end of those four to six weeks and I feel like I've made disciples and uh, you really hit it on the head at the very beginning of that is that we just haven't even given attention to the deep theological training necessary for a true disciple. It's just so, so true. Yeah, and, and we back to the images that I put yeah. on the, the board. Like we we've kind of assumed that the deeper things will take care of themselves. I mean, this this is obvious, but it's one of those things that's so obvious we we often miss it. We 
we've kind of assumed that all deep things will work themselves out, that all we have to do is concern ourselves with the relatively superficial and shallow things. Right? So we, we tell people that they should pray. But we don't actually take time to teach them how to pray. Yeah. Like we, we assume they're going to catch on, yeah. right? And you see this, I'm, I'm prepared, preparing to, to speak at a, a funeral for a former student of mine who was still very, very young when he mm-hmm. passed. And so it's, it's a hard moment mm-hmm. for, for us, those of us who knew him. I'm and very sorry. Of course, especially for his family. And one of the things that that has me thinking is the ways in which we've, we weren't taught to grieve. We just kind of assumed that people would figure that out, right? That we, we didn't, we don't teach about that, right? I mean, in the last decade or two, more and more churches have kind of rediscovered that, hey, we need lament, but there's a reason that the Psalms are filled with lament. But we've not spent a lot of time teaching people what it's like to mourn, right? Jesus says that mourning is blessed, yeah. but again, we've, we've kind of left that for people to figure out on their own and so on. Like, I think any deep thing we've, we've kind of assumed, you know, that'll work itself out. And I think that what we're reaping now, beginning to reap now is the result of Christian ministry that doesn't concern itself with the deeper things. And that's, that's what that line is about. It's not nominal. It's truly false because what's happening is we're brushing the su- the surface of people's lives with resources for the life they want, but we're not accessing and, and showing them how to let God access the, the heart of their heart. And that means that without realizing it just a little bit at a time, we're replacing true with false, true with false. And, and you know, one board at a time, it doesn't take long before you have an entirely different house. And I think that's, that's what I think the last few generations have witnessed. You know, when I look at my PhD work was on early Pentecostalism. So the Pentecostal movement at the late 1800s, early 1900s, and you can see this everywhere with them. They, most of them are from other traditions, Methodist, whatever the case might be, Presbyterian, where they've had kind of deeper theological training. And they want to add to that an openness to the spirit, a belief in the God of the miracle, et cetera, et cetera. But they already are assuming kind of deep training in the Apostles' Creed or in Scripture, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. There's, there's some foundational work that's been done. And then adding to that, this openness to the charismatic. What happens over time in our tradition is more and more we we do not tradition. We do not pass on the yeah. deeper things. Yeah. We either pass on only what's distinctive to our tradition, like Pentecostals believe X, Baptists believe Y, and that's what we end up teaching. Or we don't even teach that, right? We just kind of ignore doctrine altogether and are always talking about the practical, how to have a better marriage, how to get the job that you want, you know, how, how to get the life that you want for yourself. And the long-term consequences for that are just devastating, like utterly devastating. It is a case of, you know, building a house on sand because discipleship has to be rooted in 
confidence not only in who God is and not only in God's character, what God is like, but in God's nature. Yep. I have a, a, a piece, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt, but one more word and I'll, I'll cut this short. The, I have a PhD student who just finished up, Andrew Williams, and he and I were talking recently. He said something I thought was so to the point. I was talking with him about how a lot of times, even when we do talk about God, we only talk about God's character. Mm-hmm. God is merciful. God is just. We don't talk about God's nature, what it means for God to be eternal, what it means for God to be infinite, what it means for God not to change. That to us feels too impractical, right? That's for the academics. But I was, I was talking with Andrew and I said, but of course we can only trust that God's character will bring about what he desires if he has the nature to do it. Mm. And Andrew hit I think he cut right to the point. He, he reminded me of that old kid's song. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And he said, that's it, right? That's what you're saying, that if God is good, but not great, if his character is good, but he doesn't have the nature to bring about what he wants, then God is in as bad a shape as we are. Right? <laughs> like, he, like he's at the mercy of what might happen. Yeah. If God is great, but not good, He's all powerful, but not merciful and just, then we're in the worst possible scenario because God can turn against us. But what we believe the gospel says is that God is great and good. And what we've done in our teaching is just stick with the last part of that. Let us thank him for our food. And we focused on what's on our tables, not what this means for the God who is good and great. And therefore we have things on our table. And we've, we've the consequences of that in the short run seem to be negligible, but in the long run, they're turning out to be enormous. My entire experience growing up was in the Pentecostal tradition, uh, assemblies of God, church of God. Um, Mm. You know, my, my parents, my grandparents, et cetera, come from that same tradition. And I remember as an inquisitive child, I was always asking questions and, and, and it was actually discouraged. I was discouraged about getting into all those questions. You know, it was, you know, you, you just have to trust and you just have to believe. And, you know, if we would go, if we would have, you know, a church service and the, the pastor didn't preach that day and it was very emotional and people were around the altars and that it was almost looked at as the best service um, yeah. because it was, you know, people were delivered and, and people were encouraged. And so we began to live in, the, in a world yeah. of just lots of emotion and you didn't question things and you were discouraged to question. And, uh, you know, doctrine was looked at almost a second rate you know, is the preaching and proclamation that was the most important thing and the prayer, the prayer lines and bringing people down front and all those things. And the people who really wanted to, you know, get into all the the details, uh, you know, they had a class for them, you know, but the real spiritual people, you know, they were the ones around the altar, et cetera. So I kind of absorbed a lot of that. And then it really became Absolutely. difficult for me as I got into college and seminary and I began to read and, and a lot of the, the things that I thought I believed, I, I had no idea why I believed them. And it created a storm inside of me and went through kind of the, you know, I guess the, the popular term today, a deconstruction, just went through a, a, a very dark time of just going, maybe I don't even believe these things. Uh, you know, yeah. they were just emotionally inside of me, but I, I didn't have a lot of basis for them. So, uh, right. uh, you know, what you're saying is it, it, it certainly rings true for me. 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's – I always want to try to honor the what is best in those traditions. And I always also want to assume the best yeah. of the people involved, right? And I would want them to do that for me. Sure. So I, I think the – what I've come to be convinced of is if you're in a tradition, if you're in a community that is practicing theology, it's doing the deeper things – you do need reminders that, listen, this is not about trying to get all of your theological ducks in a row. Like there, there are more important things, right? That, that theology needs to be rooted in prayer. It needs to begin in adoration for God. It needs to end in adoration for God and compassion for your neighbor. So if you're practicing theology, if you're doing the deeper work, you do need reminders. Don't trust in that the wrong way. Like don't let yourself get carried away. The problem that I think happened over time is our churches had those warnings, but we weren't actually practicing mm. any of the, the things that we were warning about. Yeah. Right. So I, I mean, I'm a professional theologian. I, you know, spend pretty much every day of my life doing theological work and I do need reminders, yeah. right. That sometimes, you know, it's not, it's not about the next book you read much less the next book you write. You know, it's about being open to God, being being open to your neighbor. But I think that warning works one way when you're doing the work. Yeah. It works a different way when you've given up on the work altogether. Mm. And that, I, unfortunately, I think that ha that's what's happened in a lot of our circles. Yeah. Well, I want to honor your time. I have a couple more quotes, if that's okay, and if, if you have time. Uh, this actually comes from chapter two again, and then I'll have one in chapter three, and then we'll stop there with, with this um, uh, this book. Uh, you write in chapter two, no feelings, however profound, ever bring us nearer to God or God to us. In the same way, no lack of feelings can take us away from God. When all impressions fail, leaving us in dryness, darkness, and desolation, we should not even for a moment think that God is far from us. Nothing can separate us from the love that holds us in being, least of all our feelings. This is why St. John of the Cross says that God is nearest to us when we are least aware of it. That's another one of those quotes that I don't know that we went any further that evening. We just got into that and began to this, this sense of this dryness, this darkness that we yeah. go through, thinking that somehow, at least, you know, again, not to belabor it, but as I was raised, you know, we were always seeking that that feeling of God. And if we didn't feel him or sense his presence, then either we lacked faith or we didn't pray through, or yep. we had some kind of sin that we were not willing to deal with or repent of. And and I remember just going through depressed periods, uh, believing that I had somehow offended God, or yep. there were certain things that I were not, I was not willing to deal with. And he wanted to try to get to those things in my life. And, and I, that paragraph alone is freeing for a lot of people if they really contemplate it and, and, and allow it to speak to them. Absolutely. I mean, it, one, it should allow us to feel what we feel yeah. without risk. You know, the shapes that I mentioned earlier. So beside the triangle, you, you have a circle. I think a lot of our ministry puts us in touch with aspects of our lives. So if that circle represents kind of the fullness of human beings, like the full experience. Yeah. 
a, a lot of our ministries kind of put us in touch with only an aspect, right? Only a few lines or dots on that circle. It can't put us in touch with the whole circle. And you can see that if you, I taught a course recently on the Psalms, the Psalms kind of cover the full circle, right? It's, it's fully orbed. The, the Psalms talk about the fully orbed life. There is praise, but there's also lament. You know, there, there are requests, but there also is praise that is worship of God as he is in himself and so on. Like it's a fully orbed life. And one of the consequences of having broad but shallow ministry is that we, we make it so that people cannot actually be in touch with everything that's happening. Mm. And that the consequences for that are enormous on our marriages, on our, on our families, the way we raise our kids, on our schools, on our public life. Because human beings who are not able to open the fullness of their life up to the fullness of God end up with not only a fragmented view of God, but a fragmented sense of self, right? Yeah. And that, I think, the, maybe the through line for that entire book is what we're called to is to open the fullness of human being, the fullness of human experience up to the fullness of the mystery of God. That's what we're called to do. And if we do anything less than that, then we're suffering and we're causing others around us to suffer. And I, I think one way you can do that is by helping people see that whatever they feel, they feel yeah. that's not a, some kind of proof that this is their standing with God, you know, and that, and this works in all kinds of ways. One is, and this was a hard lesson for me to learn because I was raised not just in Pentecostal church, but a holiness church, which was incredibly moralistic and rigorous about dress codes yeah. and, you know, kind of rules for life. Mm -hmm. And what it did is it shaped my conscience in a particular way. Right? Yeah. And I remember as a young man kind of having the realization that, listen, I feel guilt for things that are not sins. Yep. And there are lots of sins I feel no guilt for. Mm -hmm. And if I keep trusting my conscience to tell me when I'm right and when I'm wrong, there's going to be serious problems. Mm -hmm. Right. And I say all that to say that's just one aspect of this conversation about feelings, right? So we, we need to realize that there are not, um, our feelings just don't tell the, the whole truth, right? We shouldn't ignore them. We should listen to them, but they, they never tell the whole truth. They never put us in touch with God as he is. And so we have to keep that in mind. What you just explained alone could set so many people free if they just understood that their feelings are not always telling the truth that they can combat those feelings and that you can allow scripture to shape those feelings as opposed to maybe some false teachings that you've had in your childhood, et cetera. But that, in other words, that is discipleship. That's helping people learn what to do with their feelings and emotions. But that takes time. You can't shove that in a six-week class, you know, and then call them disciples once they finish this class. Absolutely. Yeah, it takes a long Absolutely. time to help people understand that and, and see that and, and feel that. Well, let me read just one more quote, and then I just have a few okay. questions at the end that's a little 
completely different, and then we'll be we'll be finished and let you get on with your family yeah. and your day. This comes from uh, page twenty one out of chapter three called Saving Desire, and I remember when we read this part, we just that again it was another one of those nights we just stopped, and this is a lengthy quote, but it's so beautiful that I just I, and, and to me gripping. I just want to read the whole thing if that's okay. Uh, you write our desires are not so much out and out corrupt as ever so slightly bent. And I remember we stopped there after I read to you the rest of this and it kind of became a catchphrase. You know, we're just ever so slightly bent. No matter what we do, we're ever so slightly bent. And so Chris goes on and, and, and he writes, we delight in the justice of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means grief for our enemies. We delight in the mercy of God, but at least in part because we imagine it frees us from responsibility to work for justice in the world. We delight in the power of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means we are protected from sufferings others have to face. We delight in the truth of God, but at least in part because we take pride in being right and we want to be known as knowledgeable and wise. We delight in the law of God, but at least in part because we imagine it provides a moral framework that allows us to sort neatly right from wrong, order from disorder, the good folks from the bad folks. We delight in the calling of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means we can find success in ministry and make a name for ourselves. We delight in the presence and work of God in our lives, but at least in part because we like how that experience leaves us feeling and we want to advance quickly into the depths and heights of our faith. Wow. That that was actually a very convicting paragraph, if that's the right word. It was gripping, and, and it made us just really think about how we are ever so slightly bent, even in the things that appear to be Christ-like or the things that appear to be uh, compassionate-focused you know, toward other people. Uh, our character yeah. is just ever so slightly bent. I thought that was a, a beautiful phrase. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Scott. Now that that's a his convicting passage. I mean, I think I wrote it out of a place of self awareness of some kind, yeah. right? And so, you know, it, it it hits me too. I mean, there's no doubt about that. This is one of the things I love about scripture. I mean, I I I love scripture in part because it never glosses over. It never presents a glossy or glo or gauzy view of its characters yeah. right and this this is astounding to me the more i think about it the more astounding it is that when scripture introduces us to characters like abraham like moses like david like paul peter it goes out of its way to let us see the ways in which even what's best about them works back against them and God has to be corrected, right? Yeah. So you see this over and over and over and over again with all of these men and women of faith, right? And I, to me, those the reason Scripture is filled with those stories is a, a reminder to us that we're actually most at risk when we're closest to faithful, hmm. right? It's it's not when we're, you know, the, the elder son. Is, is far more at risk than the prodigal son is. Yeah. Right? The prodigal son you know, is wasting his substance, but he can come to himself out there and realize this is not what I want. But the elder son is closer to the father's house, but actually further from the father's heart. Yeah. 
and and it's harder to get home when you're already living on the land mm. than it is to get home when you've gone out yeah. and and come back. And I think that a lot of what we've called ministry has been trying to nurture elder brothers instead of realizing, no, they have to come home too. Right? Yeah. And that story ends tragically, or at least it's not ended. Like we, the story stops before the yeah. end, but in the moment that the story stops, the prodigal is in the house in the party. The older son is outside of the party, refusing to go in. And the father is caught between these two sons who are still estranged from each other. Right? Yep. One of the things that weighs so heavily on me is that the prodigal doesn't come out of the party for his brother. Mm. And the older brother won't go into the party with his brother. Mm. Right? And, and God is caught between those wow. two thieves in that way. Yep. They won't turn toward each other. And so they can't be reconciled with their father mm. either. And I think that that, to me, most of the people I know, are we're more at risk of the elder brother's sins than we are the prodigal yes. sins. Right? Yes. And that coming to terms with that doesn't make it safer, right? That actually puts us more at risk. Like we're the ones who are this, and Jesus you know, says this over and over and over again, right? It's to the religious leaders of his day that he says, listen, the prostitutes and the tax yep. collectors are going into the kingdom long before you do. Right? Like, like you're, you're probably like the people that walk away from Jesus are yep. the rich young ruler, yep. right? Yep. Nicodemus. Like these, these are people who are closest to the kingdom of God in one way and the furthest from it in another. Yeah. And I, I think we have to take that very seriously. Yeah, I listened to your message that uh, you did uh, called Thy Kingdom Come, and I believe you did a a part one where you preached the message, and then part two you came back in the second service and, and kind of expounded yeah. on the on the message. And I was listening through the teaching part, the part two, and you commented on when you feel moved to pray for your enemies, um, it, it in in you think that it's because your enemies desperately need God, but in truth, you're moved to pray for your enemies because you desperately need God. And I remember yeah. I just, I paused that part and I put something on Facebook about that because it was so, yeah. so true. We, we think that, you know, God is, 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 you know, speaking to us to pray for this man over here, this woman, because they are so far from God. They need God. When, so much of it has to do with our attitude toward our enemies. So the very fact that they're our enemy Absolutely. speaks to, to where we are and how we see them Absolutely. and our character. That's exactly right. And, and it, it really was, uh, was gripping. Well, Chris, I'm, yeah, um, that's I'm, exactly right. yeah, that, that was beautiful. I, um, I'm going to move from that and just have really one question. I'd love to get your thought on something somewhat contemporary, uh, going on in our world and just get your thoughts. I, as a pastor, I talk to a lot of other pastors and, you know, we communicate back and forth and this pandemic has caused a lot, you know, of just, I, I don't know, just shifting and, and, and moving and people moving church services online and, and attendance is not picking back up. And, um, you know, people are staying home and they've developed new habits. They're watching church online as opposed to coming in. And many of my friends are at about 40%, 50%. Uh, after the pandemic, as they were before, uh, um, in attendance, and I'm just curious, what what do you think is is taking place, or maybe you, 
I don't know if you have a, a formed anything yet just on what you think is shifting or or changing within the church as a result of this national and really international uh, crisis yeah. and what I don't know if it's 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 causing us to reevaluate a lot of things and really do some hard thinking and asking some really difficult questions. And I would just love to get your thoughts on that as we wrap this up. Yeah, no, I, I think this is a a pressing question for sure for all of us who are involved in ministry. I think I think the world is changing. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going back to whatever normal was before the pandemic. I think some of it is a reckoning for the false Christianities that I talked about before. I mean, I think that we see this, say, in the Me Too movement. In some ways, we see this with the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, on issues of race and sexuality, the church is answering for ways in which it's been negligent or abusive. And that that's not going to change. That's only going to intensify from here. You know, I, I do think... There, there's, you know, in a lot of our circles, there's widespread, wide, widespread worry about persecution, you know, the, the threat of Christianity kind of losing its place in our culture. And I don't want to dismiss that out of hand. I do think it's possible for societies to, to turn and lose religious freedom, to become anti-Christian and so on. But I don't think we can let ourselves rush to that place of fear that we will be persecuted we have to grieve the ways in which we failed to be faithful witnesses. Mm. And we should be concerned about religious freedom, but that, that can only arise truthfully out of us if it comes from a place of grief and intercession yeah. and intercession. Uh, I, I think, let, let me say it like, let me say it like this. I had a moment a couple of years ago, right right in the middle of the kind of racial reckoning as it was breaking through after Ahmed Arbery's murder and then George yeah. Floyd's murder and so on. And I, I had this, what I, as a Pentecostal, I can't describe it any other way than as a word from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the word from the Lord for me was this, that when your grief for what you have done to others and what has been done to others is deeper than your fear of what might be done to you. Mm. You're free to love. Wow. You're free to love. When your grief of what you've done and others have had done to them is deeper than your fear of what might be done to you, then you're free to love. Yeah. Right? And I think that's the moment. We're in a moment of reckoning, right? We're in a moment in which models of simple truths that work for people's lives to get as many people as possible as quickly as possible into their best life now like that's ending and it's it's not going to come back and i think we should let it go yeah. right we need to we need to let god help us reimagine what ministry looks like going forward and i think that that begins with a lot of confession and intercession it begins with a lot of turning to God and turning to our neighbor, listening and grieving with, with godly sorrow for the ways in which we haven't borne faithful witness. I think that if we can get that, it'll posture us for the, the work God wants to do. 
That's great. Chris, thank you for your time today. I could uh, talk to you for a long time, and this has been a joy for me. Uh, let me encourage those of you who are listening, get Chris's book, go to Amazon, go to wherever it is that you buy books and pick up Surprised by God. And if you want to go even further, get the Sanctifying Interpretation, second edition, and uh read uh, Chris's material. Uh, Go on YouTube. He's got several messages on YouTube and just allow yourself to be shaped and formed by what uh, God has done in Chris's life and to help shape and form him as well. And it's just been a a joy to learn from you, Chris, uh, in your writings and and preaching and also today, just to be able to have you here and introduce you to some some new folks. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again. I hope so. And and one day I'd love to be able to have you come and and, and preach here and and share with you in in person with our our folks and and learn from you again. That. So you take care and and uh, and your family and your 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 kids and and uh, all that you're doing at Southeastern and also in in uh, Sanctuary Church. So God bless you. Have a wonderful day and thank you again. Thanks, Scott. Let's talk soon. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Holy Shift Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider letting us know. I read every comment, suggestion, or question. Also, if you like it, give us a positive review. Take care, and we'll be back soon.